Alex, I'm checking my email every single day right now because my Starlink kit is on its way. This is going to be a game changer for me. I think so, yeah. Like you've unlocked a level, like you've one upped life if you've got Starlink. You know what's funny is I started thinking, you know, like now I need to get serious about a home PC setup. Like I'm always like my work laptop will do or or an iPad will do, but if I'm going to have like real internet at home now, I got to have like a real PC to connect to that. So how's it going to work? Because my understanding of Starlink is reasonably limited. I watched a couple of Jeff Geerling videos. I think that's about as far as it goes. Don't you have to tie it to a specific grid reference so that they have enough satellite bandwidth for you to talk to? Like it won't work if you drive 50 miles west or something, right? Yeah, I think it mostly turns out to be like a 30 mile area around your service address that you've put on your account is where it's functional. I don't, I don't know yet. This is something I'm going to play with, but it sounds like it's pretty straightforward in most cases to just update your service address. And then like it takes effect in like 15 minutes and then you can start setting up in your new location. I imagine that's actually not as smooth as it's going to go. <laughs> like I'll try to do it and it'll be like too many users in this area. <laughs> yeah, I recall I was watching a guy on YouTube who was an RVer and was proclaiming that he had hacked the Starlink algorithm to let him use it anywhere. In actual fact, what he was doing was he was pre-staging his location in the Starlink app before he got there so the systems had time to catch up or if where he got to didn't have connection to update his service address. I mean, I could see that because I generally know where I'm going to end up parking at, you know, before I go there. So I could plug that in before I arrive. The other tricky thing is, is I think the little dishy takes like 150 watts pretty much consistently once it's up and running. That's a significant amount of power. In fact, it's like running a whole PC. It is pretty much, isn't it? And they're not cheap either. <laughs> See, there was the $99 deposit, which I felt was fair. Okay. All right, fine. And then there's like a separate $485 fee to get the kit. And the kit is everything you need. It's like the router, Ethernet, the PoE injector, the dish, all of it. Uh, but every time I check, it just says pending. So you're $600 in the hole for this thing then. And then the monthly service, of course, as well. Oh, what does, what does that cost? I think it's going to be in the $100 range. When you don't have good solid bandwidth, almost any price that you can conceivably afford to pay is worth it. Yeah. Slow internet is worse than no internet. That's what they say. And then once you get that good internet, head over to a cloud guru. They are the leader in learning for the cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. Thousands of hands-on labs, hundreds of certifications and courses, and free cloud sandboxes on their credit card, not yours. Go to cloudguru.com. Get certified, get hired, get learning. I can only imagine how having decent, low-ping internet... Do you, do you have any, any sense of the Starlink kind of ping times yet? I have done a little bit of meta-analysis of the reviews, and also, to their credit, the Starlink folks kind of give you that information in the sign-up process when they're like, hey, this is a beta. It's going to go down sometime. You're probably going to get ping somewhere in the 40 millisecond range is what they kind of warn you for. And I, that's kind of what I've seen from the meta-analysis of the reviews. I have seen some reviewers get it as low as 20. Something in the 20 to 40 would be great because 40 is about the best case I'm ever going to get ever on LTE is about 40 milliseconds. And I know from having done these shows with you now for a, a long time, an LTE connection is workable but we end up stepping on each other quite often and uh, makes life for our editor more difficult so lower the ping time for us certainly the better and also i would imagine although we'll see i'll get a sense of this is it would hopefully i know it drifts 
but hopefully it drifts either less or more consistently than LTE, where LTE is kind of all over the board depending on all the other users that are in that area. Are there any constraints around the amount of bandwidth you can consume? Because with LTE, that's a big concern. Right. And as far as I know, there's no limits either. I don't know if eventually when they go public, if they'll have tiered plans, but that's a huge deal. No, 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 no. I know. I know. (laughs) Even with my quote unquote unlimited LTE plans, I'm really kind of in the doghouse after 300 gigs and around 400 gigs. They're looking at what I'm doing and, you know, I get deprioritized and all that kind of stuff. And that is like on the extremely high end. Like these are elite rare plans where I can even get that far along before they start getting mad at me. That's crazy. Where I was staying last week at my mother-in-law's in rural Norfolk, the only decent internet that she can get is through 4G LTE from uh, EE in the UK. And she gets 200 gigabytes a month uh, bandwidth for her home internet. And for me, that was a real adjustment, you know, dealing with that ping time, dealing with that, Lack of bandwidth availability. Welcome to my world. <laughs> I honestly don't know how you cope with it full time. <laughs> I know. I know. That's why I'm really excited about Starlink. Even though there's the downside of putting more junk up in space, which is a serious problem. And these may actually be visible from the ground. And maybe, you know, there's, we're not going to be happy about that long term. But it's so obvious that at least here in the States, we need a solution to this because my other options are duopoly cell providers or a monopoly cable provider. <laughs> those, are, those are my options here. And it just isn't, is, it is not long-term sustainable or tenable for something as important as our connectivity, which is how I organize, manage, and run my entire business and most of my personal life is all online now. And that's true for probably nearly everyone listening to this show. And so access to the internet just is so critical that I, I think it's kind of necessary that we have something like Starlink as an option. And if they can get these prices down to below what I'm paying for these ridiculous LTE plans, I mean, that's going to make it more available to more people and, you know, eventually to folks like Alex's mom. It's going to be a game changer for a lot of people. There are remote mountain properties that you look at these days on Zillow or Rightmove or whatever, and you think, oh, I'd love to. No, it's going to have two meg ADSL. I can't, I just can't even consider it, you know? So, yeah. And I think ultimately, Alex, it's going to make something like my end dream, building some off grid property a lot more feasible because all of the areas I've looked at in the Pacific Northwest that I could even begin to remotely afford that have water or something like that. They're all outside of cellular range. There's nothing around. There's no services. And the idea that I could go out there with my solar-powered RV and set up a little dishy and get a connection to the internet from space, it's just amazing. I mean, it's huge. Dishy. What an adorable little name. Did you see that Home Assistant had a release this week? Seems like a big one. You know, it's hard to tell from the outside, like, which ones are kind of just the minor updates and which ones are the big ones. And the one that came out as we're recording is the uh, October release that came out on October 6th. There's a big thing in here, Alex. They got official Tuya integration from the folks at Tuya, the, peop- the people that organize all the Tuya devices and run the Tuya infrastructure have now created an official integration for Home Assistant. So here's the thing about this. I mean, I think it's awesome that we're starting to get actual vendors yeah. looking at Home Assistant and going, yes, I want to support that. But also, you know, we've got stuff like cloudfree.shop and 
mylocalbytes.com and that kind of thing. And there's other things coming along with, with pre-Tasmota flash devices so that this becomes less important to me. Well, even more so because this is the cloud integration. Yeah, They worked with the cloud API team, not with like the, the firmware team. And so this doesn't work for local integration. This uses the cloud connectivity. It looks like it's doing a really good job. In fact, it's much better than before, much quicker, all of that. It's what you'd want, and it's official, but it does require their cloud API, which means it requires an internet connection, which means it's a disqualifier for me. Just like you said, I'd rather get a device I could control locally. In fact, I'd rather get a device that's not on Wi-Fi. What's your preferred poison these days? Are you a Z-Wave or a Zigbee type of chap? If you go by the number of devices I have, it'd be, it'd be Z-Wave. But if you go by where I plan to go to, it'd be Zigbee and Matter, because that's going to be one and the same, I think, eventually. Yep. Matter, I think, is really kind of exciting because if a vendor adopts the Matter protocol, then there is a local API. If you use Matter, then you've got a local API. And I, that, to me, is like, well, that's a no-brainer. But right now, uh, I invested pretty early in Z-Wave, and I've been very happy with my Z-Wave devices. In fact, I'll talk about that in a little bit more. But for me, Wi-Fi, it's just, I like to be able to reboot my access points and maintain control of my devices. I don't like putting that load on my Wi-Fi network. And if it works with Z-Wave or Zigbee, I almost am guaranteed I can make it work somehow with Home Assistant. That's very true. The uh, stuff I talked about in the last episode at my dad's house, the, the Zigbee buttons I put in here, he's been delighted with them. The, the little IKEA trad-free buttons, I think is what they're called. Uh, they, they're working great. So you get a, a plus one on Zigbee from me anyway. I'm going to hold out with my Z-Wave devices for now. And then when the matter stuff settles, I may make a transition. But Alex, with the release, they had a live stream, kind of like a release party with the developers, and they brought on the, some of the developers from Tuya, and they talked about some stats, the opt-in stats that people can, uh, can get into and then send their information off anonymously. They said that for the people that have opted in, they now show 90,000 active Home Assistant users. And that's just since April when they launched this statistics package and the people who have opted into it. Uh, also, the data shows that a lot of people have not updated since that April release. <laughs> 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 oh, boy, that's a lot. That's a lot of updates since they're doing them monthly now. Also, their analytics show that 40% of Home Assistant users have a Chromecast. 40% is a huge, huge number for that kind of thing. HomeKit also shows as quite popular. And the most popular hardware was the Raspberry Pi, followed closely by running... Home Assistant in a VM like you do. Now, do they take statistics on how many of those Raspberry Pi users are you? <laughs> <laughs> very fair, very fair. Those, all those stats are public at analytics.home-assistant.io or we'll put a link in the show notes. This is also the release for us Z-Wave users where it's time to migrate to Z-Wave JS. As of this release, it now supports S2, which is the improved security model. And it's short for security too. Surprise, surprise. Besides improved security, devices are also more reliable. They provide greater battery life and less latency compared to the original security mode that was supported by Z-Wave JS. The integration will now automatically pick the best and optimal security method available. They have a whole new wizard for adding new devices and it looks sharp. Oh, and speaking of wizards, there is now a migration wizard to migrate you from your old Z-Wave setup to the new Z-Wave JS, which is what I was waiting for. However, when I go in my home assistant, 
It actually still asking me to op- uh, migrate to o- OpenZW or whatever it was. I-, I don't know why, but I'm still getting a migration offer to OpenZW. And I I don't know if I'm supposed to install Z-Wave JS first or or what. Like they don't give you any information on that. But if your system isn't wonky like mine, they're saying go ahead and make the migration now. It's been pretty refined. It'll walk you through what it's going to do and what's going to change. And then Alex, the developers in the stream kind of doubled down which made me feel good about using Z-Wave. They said, this Z-Wave JS integration is well-written, it's well-built, and it is well-maintained, and they think it's good code. And so it's solid. It's good. It's a good... In fact, they're going to go for... They're thinking. They haven't said they're going to do this, but they're thinking seriously about going for official Z-Wave certification from the Z-Wave group because they're so proud of how this has turned out. Oh, really? That'd be a huge success. I bought a, a Z-Wave... Uh, smart door lock on uh, some kind of sale on Black Friday and it's been sat in a box ever since because I couldn't ever get it to pair so maybe now is the time I can with that new S2 security support that's in there maybe I should give that another go yeah and it gives you a little more information and it's a little more clear about when you should go hit the pair button on the device like all of that whole process is a little smoother now it looks with Z-Wave JS. They did a little live demonstration of a migration on the stream. I just remember it being frustrating as anything, you know, <laughs> when I tried it. <laughs> yeah, it feels a bit like a black box, doesn't it? Um, but no, I think I think they're doing they're doing good things. So if you are a Z-Wave device user, which you know, I just I have I probably have somewhere near. I think I have like a dozen Z-Wave devices. So it's not a it's not like an unbelievable number that I can't eventually migrate off of. But I'll be using them still for a while. All right, I've got a low-key, genuinely awesome feature that's come to GitHub, I think in the last two or three months. Load up a GitHub repository right now. You can do this live and uh, open a repository. You just need to be logged in. That's the important thing. When you have that page open, press full stop, the period key on your keyboard and watch what happens. Oh, that's pretty nice. Oh, look at them. Yeah, right? Straight into VS Code Web. Suddenly Electron doesn't look so bad now, huh? Does it? It's that repository opened up in VS Code, isn't it? Right? It better be. Yep. Oh, that's slick. Okay. Impressive. And then you open a file, you make an edit, you press save, and it then is because it's part of Git, the Git plugin in VS Code, you just commit it directly in there and and boom, you're done. Oh my gosh. If you're opening a third-party repository, though, and you make a change and you save it, it asks you then if you want to fork it and then automatically helps you with the pull merge request model that GitHub has. Wow. It is so cool in the browser. When did they sneak this in? I don't know. I mean, I first found it. Someone on our Discord told me a couple of months ago about it, I think. Of course. But I've been using it a lot for my notes in the last few weeks, actually. I've got a private repository on GitHub I use for notes. And uh, I've actually just ended up using VS Code in the browser on github.com. It's not very self-hosted, is it? But it works very well. And I want to mention our friends at A Cloud Guru have a course on the Linux kernel. It's a standalone course, but it's also part of a learning path to prepare you for the LPIC 201 exam. You'll learn how the Linux kernel provides an interface between hardware and software. You'll compile a kernel from start to finish. And of course, you'll cover kernel runtime management, troubleshooting, adding and removing modules, and modifying the modules on boot. We'll have a link on our show notes where you can go to a cloud guru and search for the Linux kernel. So we were just talking about Zigbee and Z-Wave and all that kind of stuff. So I was really excited to see that the Home Assistant has a new hardware project out. Yeah, and it's been funded. 
the Home Assistant Amber, which is based around the Compute Module 4, with their own board. It's got an SSD connector. It has Zigbee built in. In fact, the devs on the stream said, no SD cards. We hate SD cards. So you can either use an SSD or it'll come with eMMC built into it. They're going to ship it with a transparent case. I think maybe in part for radio, uh, it's plastic for radio transparency. And then they, they have a whole post on why they chose transparent. Some models will come with a PoE hat as well. It's pretty nice looking. Although I don't know if it's going to be as fast as the Home Assistant Blue. Well, no, I mean, my only concern about this box, and let me just preface everything I'm about to say with uh, the fact I think that the, these kind of projects from Home Assistant themselves are wonderful, and I'm so happy to see that they're doing it. My only concern is that putting the Compute Module 4 into a product at this stage in the Raspberry Pi 4's life cycle uh, feels like we're getting towards the end of the Pi 4 cycle, maybe. Are we going to be able to upgrade this to a, a CM5 one day? Probably not. Will, we, will there be a Home Assistant burnt Sienna instead or something? I don't know, but uh, that's my only reservation. Everything else looks great. Yeah, perhaps that could be an issue. I don't know if we know for sure if there will be a Compute Module 5. This may be a you know once every few years. That's a good point, Christopher. The other thing that holds the Raspberry Pi 4 back right now is absolutely the I.O. situation. And they solve that with eMMC or an SSD. Yep. I mean, it's no x86 box, right? Like, I've got jobs where I need more powerful systems, but I am doing more than ever with my Pi 4. I mean, now it's doing MQTT, and it's doing energy metric collection and, and graphing, and uh, it's still just chugging right along. Like, it's just, oh, and also for a short period of time, I even ran the WiseBridge on it. <laughs> Was still really? doing just fine. Yeah. Oh, that thing chumps the CPU. Only with two camera feeds, let me be clear. And I turned it off. I did turn it off. But it was but home assist and everything was still working. Like it still has a little bit of oomph to spare. And uh I could see the Compute 4 module being enough machine for most people until you get into more advanced logging and, and graphing and stuff like that. So what does this mean for the blue then moving forward? Well, it seems like the blue's kind of gonna phase out over time. Uh, the, I think the words used were, we're going to take the lessons learned and we're applying that to the amber. One thing about the blue that was noted by the developers is that it's a board that they took that already existed. And then, you know, they flashed Home Assistant onto it. But if you want Zigbee or Z-Wave or Matter Support, you got to add a dongle. And it's it's not really flexible in that regard where uh, this is a device that they kind of control the board that the compute module is going to sit in. Mm -hmm. They can integrate things like Zigbee. They can do things like PoE. And it seems like when you look at also their hardware stats we talked about earlier and you see so many, so many users are using the Raspberry Pi, it probably makes sense from like a software end user reliability stability standpoint to base your core product on that same platform if you can, because then improvements you make there are going to benefit everybody else also using the Raspberry Pi that isn't running on an Amber, they're just on a Pi. Yeah, I hadn't considered that angle. That's an interesting one. And Alex, if you if you allow me, there's one small update in this October Home Assistant release that I wanted to talk about. It's, I wasn't initially going to cover it, so I feel kind of embarrassed, but it's icons. They updated the material design icons to, uh, to version 6. They've added 400 new icons. 
And um, if you haven't done this yet to your home assistant update, I know all this has been very home assistant specific, but I tell you what, it made me love my dashboard a little bit more when I went in there and, and just tweaked the icons for all the different entities. So they all have unique individual icons that represent what they are. And rumor has it, based on what the devs accidentally said on the live stream, they're going to include in the Lovelace wizard a new icon picker soon that lets you easily pick from these icons. Oh, good, because the MDI website that you pick the icons from slow. is the slowest damn web page to load on the entire freaking internet, I swear. So slow. So bad. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm glad they have it, but it's so slow. Yeah, so they're going to have an icon picker. It'll be built in. And these these material design icons are in Home Assistant. And there's so many for your different devices that just kind of give you a nice visual indicator of what it do. Mm-hmm. you got to know what it do. Now, what were you doing earlier in the week? You, you weren't, you know, messing about with BGP roots, were you? <laughs> no, no, I'm not pushing out changes to remove DNS entries. Uh, just, you know, of course, listeners are probably picking up on the fact that this is the week that Facebook went down. And Alex and I are watching this with popcorn going, oh, could you imagine what it's like to be on site right now where they can't even badge in, let alone figure out why everything's down? What a nightmare. Or send each other an email. That's the thing. Like, you know, Bob at Facebook.com would no longer work, would it? Man, if uh, if uh, if I didn't know any better, I, I'd think somebody probably lost their job. Well, I mean, this conspiracy theorist in me wonders, it's all a little fishy that it happened on the exact same week as the uh, testimony, the whistleblower thing. You know, is it a deflection tactic or is it just genuine, genuinely a screw up? I, I don't know, but... You got to wonder sometimes. I don't think it was a deflection tactic. I mean, it was, if it was, that was a very significant self inflicted wound. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) I actually saw one of my neighbors sharing on Facebook today 10 Facebook alternatives for 2021. (laughs) I just thought that was so funny. Yeah. And Telegram saw a massive rush of new users. You know, I'd buy an insider job before I'd buy an intentional screw up, you know, like a rage quit kind of thing. Yeah, maybe. Maybe the Zuck didn't give somebody the uh, smoked meats they were after. <laughs> I've been a little too distracted to really pay attention, though. I got I got sucked into the rabbit hole of energy monitoring. Right, yeah, because you're, you're back home now, so you've actually got some free time instead of just driving all day. And Home Assistant, while I was on the roads, so I didn't have a chance to really look at it, added energy monitoring support where you can actually like get some good stats and whatnot in Home Assistant mm-hmm. and identify batteries and utility sources and and even like, you know, fuel consumption costs, if you want to monitor that. So I thought, okay, I got to try this. And I have a couple of Z-Wave smart plugs that do energy monitoring. I've never really used that. So that is sort of the route that I looked at this like, well, why don't, why don't I try to see if I can get my existing smart plugs to work? And for listeners that don't remember, I have, I have two setups. I have a home automation setup in my RV, which is pretty extensive. And then I have like a mini version at the studio. It's like a smaller instance of, of a home, home assistant. It runs on the home assistant blue. And in a way, it's, it's often kind of like a good testing ground because it's so much simpler. There's just, there's less entities to go through and all that kind of stuff. And I noticed after the update to the home assistant blues version of home assistant, which is, comes out at the same time everybody else does, that. I just had energy monitoring, like my Belkin Wemo plugs that I happen to have that I only use here in the studio were just reporting their energy usage. 
And Home Assistant had like a little diagram of where power was going and how much power had been used that day. And I thought, wow, that looks great. I'd love to have that at home where I actually care about my power and all of that kind of stuff, I thought to myself. So I go home and I don't have any of that. My plugs are monitoring their draw. They're seeing how many, how many watts are being used. But Home Assistant couldn't care less. If like if I bring up the sensor, yeah, it, it knows how many watts are being used. But when I go to configure an energy device, it's just, pfft, whatever, bro. There's no devices giving you any stats. For some reason, I've just got this picture of Home Assistant being like this uh, Beavis and Butthead style character sat on a couch in the corner with a backwards baseball cap and a cigarette in the other hand going, whatever, bro. I don't care. Yeah, you can't have that. <laughs> I don't care. And it, so to me, it's like, okay, there's something wrong. Obviously, these devices are like not giving Home Assistant the information you need. But when you go into the developer tools and you look at the state attributes and the states it's sending back, it's clearly saying this is the amount of power being consumed. It's in the watts format and it is this many watts. Like it's easily readable by the human eye. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on here? Why can't I see this power draw? And I want to, I want to not only get an overview of my power draw, but I want to start building automations that say, Hey, when two appliances, when these two smart plugs, because I can just say these two together, they're on one circuit. I know that. So when these two smart plugs both have a draw over 500 watts, turn off the heater smart plug. Always turn it off. So that way the wife can turn on the toaster. And when it starts drawing 1,000 watts, it turns off the heater that's drawing 800 watts. And that's, that's essentially what I want. And if anybody has a blueprint or a good advice on how to set that up, please let me know. Ultimately, that's what I'm trying to get to. I haven't gotten there yet. But what I did do is I managed to get my damn energy monitored. And it took quite a journey, I have to say, because ultimately, you have to get the data in the format that Home Assistant wants. So first, you got to have Home Assistant 2021.8 or newer, and you need a smart plug or an energy monitoring device, like one of those clamp devices or a Shelly that reports in kilowatt hours. All my plugs report in watts. As in watts currently being consumed. Home Assistant wants kilowatt hours. And then it'll do all the math for you from there. So what you have to do is you have to get an integration called integration. It's a math integration which will take the watts and convert them into kilowatt hours for you and then produce a new sensor that shows that energy information in kilowatt hours. I have a configuration.yaml entry example in the show notes. Then once you have that, the new energy utilities that are built into Home Assistant will see this device as something it can pull stats from and will start giving you your usage. So I have to go through for each one of my smart plugs and I have to do this. I have to create this, like this template sensor that takes information from the state of my smart plug and formats it in a way that Home Assistant wants. And I have the examples in the show notes, but I had to go deep because I had to learn a little bit of how templating works. I had to, I had to learn about creating new kinds of sensors. <laughs> it, was, it was really quite the journey. I, I naively expected to just do the update, get energy monitoring, and see my smart plugs report in there. And boy, was I wrong. Sometimes we get a bit spoilt with Home Assistant, don't we? It picks up so much, it does so much, and then... Occasionally, we actually have to break out some uh, Da Vinci code to find out what we actually wanted. I think this is one of those examples. And I felt like there was so much out there that 
didn't apply since the new energy monitoring was introduced. So like a lot of the help was old and no longer relevant. And because my smart plugs, I guess, aren't as common, um, there's not as many people that have solved this problem. <laughs> so I just, yeah, it was, I felt like I was searching niche resources and it took me a while to even just try to figure out the language I need and figure out what the requirements were of Home Assistant and all of that. That is a real problem with with projects like Home Assistant that move so fast. I see it a lot with Kubernetes at work as well, is that kind of... Uh, google entropy of of stuff like a post you know google will think a a year old post isn't too old to surface as the top result when in actual fact in home assistant land that may as well be 10 years ago yeah that's exactly right um and then you know alex when i got it all kind of done i realized it's okay it's pretty basic at this point because i don't have all of my battery and solar information in there It really wasn't worth the journey. I actually like the dashboards I created myself better. And I'll have a few links in the show notes. It it involved uh, setting up a history stats integration so I could collect historical information about my power usage. And then I used a utility meter integration. And that let my virtual energy monitors I'd set up that produce kilowatt hours show up as a utility source. Now, That lets me do all kinds of things like now I have a dashboard that shows me if today my heaters are using more power than they were, say, three days ago. I have a three-day window on my power usage of my heaters, and I can kind of tell when I'm kind of using more power, and maybe I can make adjustments based on that if I want. I actually haven't decided to take any action on that. Right now, I'm just collecting the information and collecting historical information and so when summer comes around, I'll have a totally you know different set of data. And then when the whole year is completed, I, th- I think the information is going to be pretty fascinating. And I'll probably be able to overlay it with temperature information and all kinds of stuff. So I brought together the history stats integration with the utility meter integration. And I have, again, an example of what that looks like in your configuration.yaml linked in the show notes. So now what that's done is it's created these virtual sensors that I've built dashboards around in Home Assistant that give me all this information that I think that's where they're going with the built-in energy support, but I like my version better that I built myself. It's not too bad, actually. 17 lines of code to do all that history stat stuff. It's not unreasonable. And it's very readable. Like, it all makes sense when you read it. You can see what I'm doing. It's There's nothing tricky about it. Yeah, that's very true. Now, something else we've talked about on the show previously is de-Googlifying. I'll be honest, On whilst I've been in England, I haven't been paying much attention to, to that. I've just been getting on with the business of traveling. However, you mentioned in LUP this week, uh, linuxunplugged.com slash 426, a tool called TubeSync. Yeah, I think of TubeSync as a PVR for YouTube. You give it channels and playlists, or if you're familiar with Sonar, it's like Sonar for YouTube. And then it goes out and pulls down the videos and it gives you a dashboard to tell you how many video sources you're pulling from, what's coming up next, exactly like you might expect from something like Sonar. It's a pretty advanced UI, and there's a Docker Compose that gets most of it set up for you too, Alex, including the Elasticsearch stuff you might need. Uh, the reason I brought this up on this show uh, is, is this isn't Linux Unplugged Extras, but uh, uh, I actually found something called MediaCMS.io, and this is a f- essentially a YouTube front-end clone. So what I was thinking about doing was, uh, originally anyway, was I, was, I was going to use TubeSync to download the videos from YouTube uh, just as an archiving 
type uh, utility, bring them into Plex maybe, because there are some people on the Plex forums that have YouTube metadata agents and that kind of thing. But I think what I might end up doing is using this media CMS.io's to self-host my own kind of pseudo YouTube instance thing. Have you seen this? Oh, this is neat. Yes. And it it is obviously inspired by the YouTube UI, but good on them. They've taken the best elements in this. And I think it looks really solid. They got dark mode. They got light mode. And it could really end up making a perfect curated YouTube. And wow, I could I could see it being a lot of work for what you want to do. Man, this could be a slam dunk for parents. This could be a great way. You could take TubeSync and pull in the approved channels that you're comfortable with your kids watching, have TubeSync pull it down to the file system, and then point Media CMS right at that, and it's a curated YouTube. I wonder how they handle video transcoding, because obviously YouTube has a whole bunch of stuff. When you upload video to it, it, it transcodes to all the different formats, and then you just switch on the fly the, the quality that you're streaming. Does, does this have any function for that? I don't see any quality options in the playback. Oh, yeah, no, it's under the settings. It's right there. And it says it has multiple transcoding profiles. Same defaults, it says, for multiple dimensions from twenty um, from 240p up to 1080p. Experimental support for remote workers. So I guess there's a stuff, bunch of stuff we could figure out there. That's This could be a fun project. That's something to put on our list after I get done solving energy. <laughs> yeah, and then world hunger and world peace and uh, COVID as well. You've got to solve, solve that one too. And then... And then we'll get on redoing jb.com. But we do have <laughs> one thing we can solve for people if they are an iCloud slash iPhone user and you got your pictures up there. You came across a really handy tool to help pull all of your iCloud photos down locally to your machine. Yeah, we were talking about this. Where was it? In the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram chat, actually. Someone was asking, you know, how do you back up your iPhone pictures and stuff like that? Because of the way that iOS has very restrictive background API kind of, it it kills anything in the background that's going to drain battery, unlike Android that's a lot more permissive. It means you can't run stuff like uh, Resilio Sync or Sync Thing very effectively, or there's another one on Android called Folder Sync. And so this neat app is actually called Gimme-iPhotos, which is kind of a funny name. And this sidesteps all of iOS's problems uh, with backgrounding APIs and on-device, you know, image management and stuff like that, because it hooks directly into iCloud. The only caveat being is you got to be okay with putting your photos up in iCloud. But I think what Alex is driving at there, it's like, that's the only one that's really going to work reliably with the way the iPhone backgrounding works. If you want them off the phone reliably, automatically, it's going to have to be iCloud photo on an iPhone. So that's why this is so great. And because it's Python, you don't have to be on a Mac. You could run it on a Linux box or a Windows box too. Yeah, I ran this just on a normal Linux server. I think I ran it out of a container because I'm that's just who I am. The really nice thing about it, and I didn't expect this at all, I, felt, I didn't even think about this until I tried it, it uses a Python library underneath which actually supports the iCloud two-factor authentication mechanisms. So when I brought this up for the first time, uh, a little pop-up appeared on my Mac to say, hey, someone's trying to log in as you back in Raleigh. Is this you? And here's your two-factor code. And I was like, huh, did not expect that. Yeah, that made me feel a little bit better that it was kind of legit about how it's authorizing against the iCloud servers. It seems to be using like an official Apple API for that. And I think it's great 
for running on your NAS. If you've got a NAS box that you can shell into, you could go into your directory of choice on your NAS and execute this thing, and it's just going to sit there and download photos all day long. And I think for me, the absolute killer use case are like my parents' phones. You know, a couple of parents use Android, a couple use iOS. And the iOS ones, I've really struggled to get the photos out of iCloud into anything meaningful off their phones into anything meaningful like Nextcloud even is a bit of a crapshoot on iOS. And this just solves that problem altogether. I'm not, the the only thing I'm not totally certain on is how long that two-factor authentication token lasts for. And I guess time will tell, but uh, I'm going to set this up for my parents this week whilst I'm here and then report back when it, uh, you know, in six months and, and let you know how it's, how it's gone. And are you thinking just cron it so it just runs automatically every night or something? Or? Yeah, exactly. Put it, put it on a timer and then let it download every day, every week, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That will be interesting to see how long that two-factor authentication, if it, is it, I bet you it must have some time expiration. So you'll have to check back in and see if either A, it generates a new prompt or B, just breaks quietly. <laughs> now I mentioned tail scale in the last episode, which was a brand new project to me, but it turns out a lot of you guys had already figured this one out well ahead of me. And Zahid writes in, Hello, I was just listening to your latest episode and heard about your love for tail scale. Not sure if you're aware, but there are Synology packages available for it as well. Keep up the great work. Cheers, Zahid. Hey, that's handy. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that was actually the only reason I ended up looking at uh, tail scale in the first place was I was futzing about with that Synology NAS ready to put it at my mum's house. And uh, I was like, what's this tail scale thing? I'm pretty sure I've heard of it. And then I did a bit of research, figured out it was WireGuard and was like, I'll just give this a go. And then within 10 minutes, I'd built out everything I was trying to achieve with WireGuard for several days prior. So no kidding. Huge fan of tail scale. And it, you know, real success story. My mum took it back from my mother-in-law's house where she, you know, came to meet my daughter and stuff like that. Uh, took it back to her house, plugged in one Ethernet cable, a power cable, pressed the on button on the Synology, and within a couple of minutes it had booted and Tailscale had registered it. I didn't have to do any dynamic DNS, no firewall changes. It was just magic. I swear it was awesome. That's why we've been seeing so much love this week. Erno writes in, I'm beyond ecstatic. I listened to episode 54 of Self Hosted on my way to my morning mountain biking. And as soon as I came home, I had to try Tailscale. It was pretty cool based on Alex's explanation. But now that I tried it, it's even cooler. They make it super easy to set up. I think I've been setting up WireGuard for weeks. But this, well, this just takes care of all of it for me. I have it installed on my phone, Kubuntu desktop, and my Linode server. I plan on installing it on my Odroid, running in Armbian. And I'm planning on setting up some kind of sync thing. We'll see. But so far... I am super ecstatic. Thank you so much for your mention of Tailscale. And Chris, glad you made it back to Washington. Alex, I hope you're enjoying the motherland. Sincerely, Erno from Virginia. I think I weigh at least 90% efficient chips now. Good for you. Having been back here for a month. (laughs) That's what I do too. I'd have to. Fish and chips and curry. So Taylor writes in, Thanks so much for the amazing show that is self-hosted. Every two weeks, I'm refreshing my podcatcher like a madman. I was just catching up on episode 54 and could relate to Alex's remote access woes. Tailscale is a solution that seems to be popular on Reddit and IRC, but I wanted to mention something that has been working really well for me, and that is Zero Tier. Now, Zero Tier is a distributed WAN solution that essentially creates a global overlay network, kind of like Nebula does. 
It's open source and self-hostable uh, with NAS packages, third-party web management GUIs, and so on. They just released a DNS solution as well, which sounds very similar to the Tailscale Magic DNS offering. And I just wanted to give you guys another self-hosted option. Thanks for the show. I definitely want to give Headscale a try. That's why I'm kind of waiting to replace Nebula with Tailscale is I want to see how viable it is to use Headscale and uh, self-host the server component of Tailscale. But that also looks really great. It does. There's so many options. I just I had to give a plug for Nebula too. Now, the only thing about zero tier that kind of gives me, it's just a, a one or 2% pause, is that the protocol is custom, whereas the tail scale protocol is based around WireGuard. So, I mean, who's to say one is better than the other, but uh, I love me some WireGuard. If I were a betting man, Alex, I know which one I would bet on. <laughs> it's not it's not one that's been made up. Uh, I really, I respect the WireGuard project immensely. So that's just clearly like the one I would put my trust in if my data was was truly critical. I want to mention, uh, thank you everybody who went to selfhosted.show slash contact and sent in their question. We also have the Discord community, selfhosted.show slash Discord, which is always popping off. And our Matrix community is also growing. There's a good conversation of self-hosters going on. You can find our Matrix server. We have a jupiterbroadcasting.com Matrix server. And probably the easiest way to just get like a quick guide is to actually go to linuxunplugged.com slash Matrix. I haven't put that up anywhere else yet. But there is a community growing out there in Matrix land of self-hosters. Oh, Chris, what have you done? You've invited another set of notifications into my life. Thank you so much. Oh, oh, I know, Alex. I know so well. <laughs> but you know, I'm I'm trying to assemble the troops because I'm so close to getting this automation bliss where, you know, my, my goal is to make it so my wife no longer has to worry about blowing a 15 amp circuit. If we have a heater going and she wants to run the toaster, I want home assistant to figure it out. And I know uh, like our guest Matt and others out there have done this, but I could use some wisdom. So the Matrix server is a great spot to let me know uh, because I'm I'm trying to drop in on the Matrix from time to time. The Discord's also really great or Telegram. How have you solved this particular problem? What should I do? And will my Z-Wave devices update fast enough? Because it seems like there's sometimes like a 20-second lag. All these things. Share your wisdom. Let's get this energy monitoring figured out because I think this is going to be big in the self-hosting community. And as always, I want to give a big thank you to our SRE subscribers. You make this show possible. And you can find us on Twitter. Alex is over there at Ironic Badger. I'm at Chris LAS and the show at Self Hosted Show. And as usual, thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 55. So if you have S3 and you want to go one better, what do you end up with? R2, right? Or is it one less, actually? R2? Very clever name. I don't know how they came to that. Yeah. <laughs> Just sort of like a little, it seems like a little salt in the S3 wound right there. Let's call it R2 and then let's take a swipe at S3's revenues because that's what they're doing. Yeah, they are. I mean, for those of you who follow Amazon very closely, their, their primary business model, I swear, is actually egress charges. You know, the, the amount it costs people to download data from Amazon. So I saw a calculation that to download one gigabyte from S3 for a million users would cost $60,000. Right. The same data through an R2 instance backed by S3 is 13 cents. 
man, Cloudflare is playing a clever game here, right? So Cloudflare is utilizing their totally built out and established network where they got boxes at ISP offices to help prevent and absorb DDoSs. Now that they're just flipping a switch and they've got an S3 compatible object storage that you can conveniently configure via their their wizards and they'll set up your DNS for you. You can conveniently configure R2 to sit in front of Amazon's S3. And then what you could do with a little bit of code tweaks, I would suppose, is when files are requested out of S3, they get copied out of S3 once and then they get stored in R2 and delivered via R2 at zero cost indefinitely. I mean, there's a service cost, obviously, but they have no egress cost. And that's that's where S3 makes all of its money. In fact, I have i don't know if this is true, but I saw a study that I think was actually paid for by Cloudflare. But I saw a study that said that Amazon has a 7,000% profit margin on S3 egress fees. Yeah, I mean, data doesn't cost anything. I mean, installing the original cable costs something. And then if you want to exceed the bandwidth of that cable, increasing that bandwidth costs something. But, you know, it, it, it would be like me charging myself $1 per gigabyte between my basement and my attic. It's just asininely stupid with a cable. <laughs> I'm, I'm so hopeful that this practice of capping bandwidth goes away at some point. But also, like Cloudflare here for a minute, um, you could also put it in front of Linode's object storage and Azure object storage and DigitalOcean object storage and have it all feed into R2. They're building this kind of like abstraction layer that you can now put in front of the cloud providers. They they say they aim to be the fourth major cloud provider, and they're doing it in a way by by seemingly trying to offer people choices that allow them to divorce themselves a little bit from AWS and the other big guys, I guess. I wonder what it means for people like us, you know, independent people, uh, small businesses type thing. You know, traditionally we've relied on CDN providers, you used a scale engine for a long time. And uh, that was back in the video days, I guess. And and now we use uh, cash fly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Whereas now conceivably we could kind of do it ourselves with R2 and not pay the transit costs. Yeah. It seems like it, it makes it way more available to people that are budget conscious, you know, because people who could afford the S3 egress fees and could and in and we as distributors of large mp3 files and it's not just little html files or css files have been minimized like these are big old blobs uh they cost a lot i've done when we had a cdn outage years ago i did one month of coda radio on s3 years ago and i paid out the butt for that it was bad and so this this Switch with R2 would be a game changer for us. You could literally build your own CDN on top of it if you're comfortable, I guess, going all in with Cloudflare. But then if Cloudflare's down, so is half the internet anyway. So who cares? <laughs> it's getting weird. The internet's getting really centralized. It makes it makes me feel like self-hosting is more important than ever because we are just kind of, the whole internet is kind of just coagulating into a few large groups and now, if Amazon's down or when Facebook's down, just ginormous aspects of the internet are down and that's just the way it is. There's nothing technologically that says it needs to be that way. Like TCP IP is robust. TCP can find a way. We could have distributed networks. I mean, we really didn't have to go this route. And yet, it seems like it's just speeding up, really. 
What's the phrase Agent Smith says in The Matrix? It's inevitable. <laughs> 